Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Johnson Family Open Mic Night. I am, of course, your host and first comedian of the night, Big Bob Papa Johnson, and I'm here to tell you some great jokes. I hope you're ready. All right. How's everybody doing tonight? Okay. All right. Silent audience. I get you. I get you. All right. Well, here's my first, here's my first joke. So, uh, here's the thing. I was... I fucked all your mom. I fucked all of your moms. <laughs> all of you. Get it? Get it? Because I... Okay. All right. Moving right along. So the other day, I was fucking your mom. And she was like, oh, yeah, baby. You're, you're fucking me so hard. It's like tax season. <laughs> this thing on? This thing on? We... We're getting a, <laughs> get it? Because tax season fucks you really hard? Like I was fucking your mom? Get? Any, nobody? Anybody? Hey, come on. What's, what's the deal? Your tight five sucks, dad. Your tight five sucks. Bob Jr., we've talked about this. Your negativity always ruins family open mic night. Your type five ruins family open mic date, Dad. Welcome, 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 welcome. All right, welcome, welcome back to uh, Ruben Uncut. I have a uh, very special guest in the studio today. Well, not really the studio. You know what I mean. Uh, but, um, and uh, you're up. Oh, I should have asked this before we started. Are you, uh, I assume you were up for using uh, your real identity. Yes. Yeah, let it. I'm not. I'm not hiding anything anymore. Let, 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 let them know. Let them all know. All right. Here is my uh, my good friend and colleague, uh, Jordan Yule. Welcome to the show, sir. Hi, Ruben. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a while since I've done a podcast, um, so it's exciting to be asked again mm -hmm. to be doing it. So good to be here. No, absolutely. I've uh, you invited me to be on your show uh, on Anchor mm -hmm. previously. Um, which uh, actually introduced me to Anchor, which is now now where I make my podcast. So that's uh, so I so I have a little bit of a thanks to owe to you there in, in regards to that. Thanks to Anchor, they made such an accessible platform. This isn't the plug, but like it, it's cool. You can use it for free and just be able to post it anywhere. So I'm mean, not anywhere, but like in the traditional like iTunes and uh, Spotify. So it's just a great service. So I'm glad yeah, you discovered absolutely. using it. It's very you know it's uh, it's. I am happy to be part of uh, Spotify's content farm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's a good way of describing it. I mean, that's what it is. Uh, but uh, I appreciate that they allow me the freedom to submit my podcast to other people as well. Uh, and they're pretty good with, like, musicians. They can be sometimes, you know. The big thing is, like, musicians are, like, they're not getting paid enough for Spotify. But a lot of my indie artists are able to get their stuff pretty easily on Spotify from what I've heard, so. I mean, that's cool. 
I mean, I like, I like doing new people. I mean, that is sort of the thing. It's like you're you're trading. Um, sometimes you're trading accessibility for for money, or mo uh, you're trading money for accessibility in certain cases. Yeah. Like you're making it so you can get your podcast to as many people as you can, and they'll like help give it this minor amount of push or whatever it is that they do. Um, actually, I did recently uh, get uh, offered to add commercials to my podcast, which I'm planning on doing at some point. But like I looked at it and it said uh, that I essentially would get a little over $10 for every 1,000 views. Uh, yeah. That people, every every 1,000 times someone heard the commercial. And it was kind of like, that doesn't sound like I can actually make money yet. <laughs> It's like it, it's weird because you just have to build up to it. I think from when I did my all my episodes, I think I have like what seven dollars in there. Which what am I gonna? What is that yeah, gonna no, come need, to? You need ten to, to cash out. You need ten dollars to cash out. So right. So I guess like if I ever want to do anything, I would just have to. I would have to make more episodes. Yeah. And then even get to that point, which we'll see about. But you know, no, exactly, exactly. I don't know. I might do it to experiment with it. Part of me is wondering like. If I start doing the ads, will they start making me show up in more search results so that they can make more money? I mean, that's the whole game of it, too. It's like that that free aspect. It's like you'll... I, I don't even know what I'm talking about. I'm acting like I know so much about this <laughs> part of it. I don't. I'm not like, I don't know anything all, either. But I just know that they need... They want that money. They want that money. They want people to know. So, yeah, I mean... That's no, fair. It, it's doing what they need to do. Yeah, no, I don't maybe, know what's happening back there. Maybe I'll start adding that those commercials sometime soon here, just to experiment with it and see what it actually does. That'll just be see what happens. Throw some throw it to the wind. Uh, what I is have... your policy on on cussing here? Is it like we keep it super no, clean? I, uh, I I run an explicit podcast, so that how much you want to cuss is entirely up to you. Oh um, yeah. I mean, I'm not gonna. I'm not for. I'm not here to force you to be uncomfortable or anything. Uh, no, I, no, I, I just. For me, it's like sometimes it slips in and out. And I wanted to be conscious of it because I can, I I don't have to, but some but it's just the people I hang around with, with the comic that uh, just sort of comes out sometimes. You just get yeah, I no, slip I, sometimes. I totally totally understand. It's part of what I it's part of what I do here. You're not someone I think of as a person who like is throwing around profanity all the time. But then again, no. maybe that's because maybe it's because I know you largely in a professional context. I <laughs> yeah, we 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 work with. Uh, with Center for Applied Drama and Autism, we work with a lot of younger folks and their family, people who don't usually are exposed to a lot of profanity. We're, we're, we're trying not to expose them to a lot of profanity, so I'm definitely keeping my, my stuff under the radar there. Like, whenever whenever a student or someone I know comes to see, like, an improv or, or stand-up show that I'm in, there's always a part of me that, like, there's a part of me that's, like, how do I be, how do I maintain myself? And, like, I don't know, like, um, like uh, I did this one improv show at the Rialto with, with just go with it, and uh, one of one of our students who is an adult, who is technically an adult student, but still right. like uh, has a, has a, comes from a seemingly kind of conservative family and is very mild mannered person and whatnot. But they they didn't seem to have a problem with it when I did a brief improvised monologue about how no one seems to be offended by the word fuck anymore, uh, but. Right. So they didn't say anything. So I think I'm, I think I'm okay. I had a similar problem, except it wasn't with the student. It was with my parents. Um, now they're fully on board me doing comedy, and we've and we 
and, and they like they love that I do it and they're happy for me and they want to come support me. Um, but I'm starting to get into that point where I'm trying to I'm talking more about my personal life, which I never usually include them in because it's just the age gap and it's just it's a lot of explaining I don't want to do. Nothing like bad, but like they came, they surprised me on a show one day and I like an idiot throughout my entire set because it was just stuff I just wasn't ready to have them here yet. And I and I totally bombed. It was all my fault. You know, I, that is part of the thing is that like once you, you got to get you got to sometimes you got to commit. Like sometimes yeah. you get there to the show and whatnot and you're like, because like, I mean, there's a line, though, like there is a moment you're like, oh, wait, I didn't know this. I didn't know this show was going to be in the bottom of a church. Let, yeah. me, let me make some cuts. But like, like, I wanted, I wanted to be mad at the audience and my parents, but I can only be mad at myself because, like, a, I should have more material in the sense where I should be able to have a set that's squeaky clean and also a set that's a little bit dirty. That that's my job. That's what I should be bringing more to the table. Yeah. And then the other thing is, I like you said, I just need to stick with my guts. When I make a plan, I just need to go do it because it's a plan. I made it for a reason. And it's like, I know that, that the jokes I said, are, I'm doing for a reason. So I just have to not back out. And that's like the hard thing about stand up because it's all you. You could back out of whatever you want in that last moment. I mean, there's sometimes you have to talk with like people when you're like showing them your set. I think I heard like if you're doing like TV and stuff, you have to like let them know beforehand. But um, other than that, when you're just like on stage going, but he's like, you have like that weird amount of control where you could just let it go you could just like change it last second but you really shouldn't do that you should really i've learned you should hold yourself to your to your own standard that you made prior and try to know try to know your crowd as much as you can before you go in although yeah. although you, you do need to you do need a pivot set like it's a good idea as a comedian to have a pivot set for like when you go to a place and you realize that the crowd is not gelling with your your one set and sometimes the dirty set is the pivot set like you go to a set and you're playing it clean at first and you're like oh no this audience wants to go dirty okay sometimes sometimes that's really a fun thing oh you want dirty you want to see me go dirty i can go dirty and i think that's what that night was that was the night where i'm like i should have gone uh dirtier because it was a it was a primarily black audience and stuff so they're already used to uh, not to stereotype anyway, but you'll, you'll notice like sort of like just the rooms and stuff, they're more like they get into it really fast. Like everyone else is going for like the dirtiest jokes, like who fucked who, um, whose mom's a hoe, that that whole thing. And, and like they were already in that. I should have stuck in jokes that would have gone some of that vein. It, it would have been. So it's like trying to find that balance too. It, it's it's weird. It's weird. It's fun, but it's frustrating in the moment when you're like, fuck, I should have just like, I should have trusted my gut. No, I, I hear you, man. I sometimes you just gotta commit. Like the worst part is when you're on stage and like you can't. Once you're on stage, you really can't change. No. Like, uh, like there was another incident where I was doing stand up and one of my students was there. Um, another adult student, fortunately, <laughs> but like, uh, but like him and his mom are there, and like I actually wasn't like there was part of me was like I'm not sure how old he actually is at that time because right. I I had just got started working with him. Um, but like, like I'm up on stage and I'm like, this is a set about that time I tried ketamine and why that's a poor life choice. Is this what I'm doing in front of this student? <laughs> and like, but like I was already in the set. So I'm like, I gotta, okay. Can't stop in the middle of the set. That is, that is an immediate failure. If you, if you can't, because you almost, you can't, like you can't show weakness. Yeah. 
You can't show weakness on the in stand-up comedy. You cannot show weakness to the audience because that like invites this level of the audience thinking that like they can call you out, and yeah. it's it's, and it's that, a weird thing. And that was the and that was the thing that I did do well on that one night. I stuck with the set, even though there are people talking over me in the audience, and and there were like three people listening. I still stuck with the set. Oh, yeah. And that made me, it, it hurt a lot. It hurt just to like know that like, okay, no one, there's like maybe like three people paying attention to you and like two of them are your parents. And then there's two other people just who are just like, I guess, randomly listening. So it's like, I guess I should just push through it. I mean, if I'm going to do it, I might as well just commit to it. Mm-hmm. It hurts in the moment, but you know, I'm, I'm glad I did it. There was one person who did come up to me afterwards and was like, I really liked your set. You really spoke to me. And I was like, well, I'm glad I spoke to somebody. <laughs> See, you didn't completely bomb. You just couldn't. I didn't completely the bomb. It, sometimes it is thing. important to like figure out who in the audience has like you. You can like, if you know, like if you're at a rough show, if you can just figure out who in the audience actually is listening to you, it can sort of like get you through that moment. It, it is. It helps. It's like because it's just looking. I mean, I'm always someone who's looking for validation. Always so. Well, yeah, that's why you get into comedy in the first place, you know. That's why I'm on stage. It's like I want people to say, to say, oh, you're so funny, Jordan. You're so, you're so, you're so charismatic. Can you do more shows? Oh my gosh, it's so funny. It helps me get through the day. If I had a good set, that would carry me for a week, actually. If I like one good set, a bad, but a bad one will keep me for like a good month in my head. Like I'm still, I'm just now coming out of that rut from that bad set. So I, I actually, I had a weird, uh, my most recent stand-up comedy uh, experience was kind of weird, but, but it was also nice because they gave me money. Uh, but, nice. So um, actually, like, uh, in, uh, in one of the CADA projects I'm with right now, there's another local comedian, and uh, his name is Max, and um, he was setting up a, a New Year's Eve show. Okay. And, like... It was early New Year's Eve too, like at nine o'clock. So I was like, "Sure, I'll I'll go do a New Year's Eve show for like." It uh, turned out to be two hundred dollars, and I was like, "Okay, cool." Uh, but nice. like, but like that was a, it was a great example of like how like you need to be aware of like audiences and pivoting, uh, because like when I got there, it was almost immediately weird. Like I like he like I come in and it's this bar place, and that's fine, that's cool. I've done yeah. bars before, but like. Um, but like I meet the owner with with Max and like the first thing I'll like I tell him my name and the first thing he does is he's like, hey, do you know Ruben's I forget the guy's last name, but he knows he's like, do you know, have you heard of Ruben so and so? And I was like, uh, I was like, no, should I know who that is? And and like he's like, Google it, Google it. Uh, and he's got kind of a little bit of an accent, uh, although I, I, I couldn't tell you what it was specifically. But so like I Google it and like. And like it's uh it's a guy it's a it's a porn producer, it's oh. like a straight up like adult film producer from like the seventies. And I'm like, oh, okay, it's gonna be that kind of show. Uh, uh, no. Oh, but wait, there's a twist coming. <laughs> so like, so Max gets up uh, to do his set first. Um, uh, brave of him. Uh, being I I've never liked going first. I think going first is the worst. Um, I hate going first. It's it's oh yeah no because you got to break in the audience. Although no. what's worse is when you go when you go second and it's after a person who like failed at first. <laughs> he might as well be going first. Yeah no exactly. Uh, 
and that's that's no like we're all that's a thing all comedians are going to go through like that i'm not like i'm not like shitting on people oh. who do that oh no of course because that... i've i have stunk up the room before somebody and i and i picked up a room half for somebody it's just the way it's just the way it happens yeah. sometimes it, it, yeah 100 percent. and uh but so he does he does his set first and uh, he's doing he's doing some jokes. He's uh he's worked out a lot of jokes about um, polyamorous relationships that he's that he's trying out. Okay. And um so there's this one guy who is like a drunk guy who comes up from the bar at one point because he's he's like, and he's like, I have a joke, I have a joke, I have a joke, and I forget like Mac, I forget if Max gave him the mic or or like how the exchange went with uh, props to Max for trying to roll what was going on, although dangerous move, I will say. Uh, you never know who's in that crowd. Yeah, no, exactly. But so like he hands the mic to the guy and he's like, I got a joke. I got a joke. And, 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 his, and what he says into the mic instead of a joke is some of us are here trying to have a nice dinner with our families. Ah! <laughs> uh, <laughs> Because he he was taking he was taking issue with how sexual Max's act was, which I which was a little sexual, I won't lie. But like so like he's got and like that's his joke into the mic. And so like and like it's like, oh man. So we there's a there's a disconnect between the owner of the establishment and, and the audience here. Was there one of those shows where like the audience wasn't expecting comedy and comedy was sort of thrusted on them? I honestly don't know. I mean, like, there was clearly like there all there was clearly like one table that was enjoying themselves, and like I don't think anyone else cared. Uh, but like, <laughs> but like, um, so then I get uh, I do my bit, and um, I I can't help myself. I have to open by by making fun of this guy who came up, I, and I I so I get up and I'm like, just want to thank you to the brave gentleman who uh, got up here claiming he had a joke and then proceeded to deliver nothing like a joke. That takes a lot of bravery. It takes a lot of bravery to, to commit to that fake out. And just be... <laughs> uh, so, it's just so funny. He's like, yeah, I got a joke. Hey, some of us have families here who are trying to just enjoy a nice, wholesome dinner, okay? It sounds like a dad who just had enough. He's just like, come on, man. It's already hard enough out here. You just over here making joke. Like, it's like, ah... Yeah, no, like, and the, and the other thing is that, like, he's also clearly slightly drunk. Like, it's yeah. just, so the guy complaining about being here, I mean, they're at a bar, like, having yeah. a wholesome New Year's Eve dinner. I don't know <laughs> what's going on uh, there. I mean, they clearly had food options, but, um, <laughs> but still, it was, it was a pretty hilarious, um, a hilarious, like, interaction with an audience member. And so, like, but afterwards, like, me and Max were chatting about about the exchange, and like, that guy actually came out and like started talking to us about like, why is our act gotta be so sexual? And it's just like, humans, oh, and that's what we talk about. We we talk, we we talk, we do stuff, and we want to talk about it because it's part of the the human condition. Like, that's something that I've never really understood i'm like the sort of hesitation around like talking about sexual stuff because it's like i mean we i, I understand this there are lines of course but like it's something that people do we are here mostly because of a lot of us because of the initiation of those acts or or of of, of, of that nature so it's like it's it shouldn't be as taboo but that's just like i 
to to like go against stereotypes too is I'm pretty sure the guy was there with his husband. So and like so like it, it, I just thought that was an interesting thing. It was like, oh, conservative uh conservative gay man. Okay. That happens. That happens. No, it does. 100%. I mean, yeah. It does. I just I'm always I'm always entertained when when reality skews from the stereotypes. Yeah, I, I, I find that personally entertaining. I don't know if other people are like as cognitively aware of those things, but I, I, I know I am because that's basically what my whole thing is, uh, is things of because it's like I I don't follow any of the traditional stereotypes, not as like a black as a black guy or just a man, even in the sense like I in the sense that I am not as masculine and I'm trying to write jokes about it now um, because it's like I, I'm just not hyper masculine. I can never really played sports. But yet I, I have this big frame and I look like I, I, I play sport. And I look like my voice should be a lot deeper than it actually is, which I do sort of force up there a little bit just because I, I like having this tone more than like being like down here and stuff. Like this isn't fun. It's <laughs> like kind of boring. But like it, it is fun to be able to play with people's like perceptions of stuff when you have control over it. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's fair. That's fair. Which is not at all what you were talking about anyways, but like... No, no, no. I think those are great points. Uh, Also, you know, this is a great point in the conversation for anyone who was ready to cancel you for stereotyping black audiences before. Just remind... Yeah. Oh. (laughs) That's like, who is this white guy? Who is this white guy trying (laughs) to talk about black audiences? Yeah, no, I'm I'm black. You're the problem. Turn it back on you. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, I don't. I, I'm not really a big believer in cancel culture, but I do know that sometimes mm-hmm. people get upset about things. <laughs> yeah, it's all it's context. Yeah, you, you guys, you'll see, you'll see a picture of me. You'll have my, you'll, you'll have my socials attached to this. You know, you'll, you'll be able to see who's the man behind the face. I'll be like, what that? Huh? I, I actually, you know, that's that's actually an interesting point because, like, I do do, I put these up as audio, so like, yeah. I, I sometimes wonder, like. Yeah, sure. There's a picture on my on my like Spotify of me, but it's not like a very it's not necessarily the most accurate representation of me as a picture. Like I've got on aviator glasses and like a huge Christmas sweater. Uh, but like. But so there is a part of me that wonders if like people listen, if like people who don't know me who come across this podcast will listen to it and like develop this like mental image of what I could possibly look like. Yeah. That's happened with podcasts before. It's also happened with singers. There's this singer, Bobby Codwell, from the uh, 70s, who sings a song, uh, What You Won't Do for Love. And I swore for a good majority of part of my life he was black. Found out that he was white. And I was just like floored because I was like, I could have sworn this was a black man singing this song because he just sounds black and he does such a good job. doesn't change how I feel about the song. It's still an amazing song. But I'm just like, huh. Like, I, I really... I really just have my own vision of who this man was. I, uh, I, I this reminds me of a, um, a friend of mine once told me about an argument he got into his mom with with his mom about Tom Waits, where he had to prove yeah. to her that Tom Waits was white. No, always those singers. It's like it's like Robin Thicke, and then also George, what's his name, uh, Doobie Brothers. Wow, why can't I think of his name? Uh, I, Michael I, McDonald. Oh, Michael okay. McDonald. There we go. Minute by minute, baby. So, th- okay, so I'll share a possibly more embarrassing one. I, for okay. a long time, 
thought the Bee Gees were a group of black women. I, <laughs> I to be fair, this is me when I'm a kid, but still, <laughs> there was a part of me that was like when their music would come on, my brain was like, oh, there's that, is is that disco uh, black ladies group with the Bee Gees. So <laughs> and that's so thought, funny because <laughs> I could definitely see where you come from just because where they are. Because their voices, they're really, really up there. Not that guys can't have high voices, but it's just like, just with like the, they're another group that's like, they have a lot of soul to them. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you wouldn't, and it's just something you just wouldn't expect from like a white group maybe of that time. Uh, it, it's funny you mentioned that because I've been digging the vinyls recently. I've just been buying them up in stock and I got the one from Saturday Night uh, Fever. And I got theirs. And it's like, it's weird because there are some black artists on there. And so it gets really confusing if you haven't seen them before. You're not familiar. You're like, who is who are these black people singing? <laughs> I'm laying it down over here. Uh, staying alive. I'm staying alive. You look at their they're like, like these like little shaggy like white guys. Wait, who did staying alive? Is that the Bee Gees? Is that? I, I'm not yes, a big he, disco person, so I don't. So I'm like, a, that's the other thing. I'm a huge disco person. It's disgusting. Oh, yeah. Uh, but really? yeah, yeah, no, that's saying, oh yeah, I love, I love anything from the seventies. In, in... Oh, you cut it, you cut out there a little bit. Oh, your, your sound appears to have stopped for some reason. That's, that's weird. We are experiencing minor technical difficulties. Wait, did my sound go away completely? No, your sound's back now. Oh, and I just got a message that said internet connection unstable, so it might have been that. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. What, what were you saying? You, you love disco? Oh, yeah, I love disco. Anything from the 70s is my jam, music-wise. Uh, it's just, I don't, I don't know. It's just like the, it's just the, the, the era itself wasn't a good, that wasn't a great decade by any means. But the but the art the music of it, it just it just really speaks to my soul. I love disco just in the sense of just like how how like poppy and fun and dancey it is. I like the funk of that era. How like down and dirty and just like Parliament Funkadelic, uh, Slide and Family Stone, those, those types of groups, which I have oh, all vinyls of. I've spent way too much money on them. I always think I always think of um, I always think of uh, Parliament as being more like psychedelic, but that's a good point. They would tend it is, it's like air. psychedelic funk. It, it, bore, it bores bouts between those two lines. It's all within that, like... Oh, well, you know, obviously psychedelic place. funk. I meant... I meant uh, I wasn't thinking of disco, I meant, when I thought about it. But you're, you're right, yeah. They all sort of, like, play into each other a little bit. Like, they, they exist in this sort of weird same atmospheres. And they're all sort of play together at weddings, so... That's fair. <laughs> I... I, uh... I, I will admit that like there was a there was a brief period where I kind of did get into disco, but it was largely because I watched the movie The Full Monty. Oh, and that movie yeah. just has like really good usage of the disco music throughout. Mm -hmm. And plus, you see like other like it's a bunch of the guys just like dancing together and stuff. They got their whole like squad and stuff, and that's always fun to see because yeah. it's like it's like guys dancing are just so much fun to to watch. Because some like a lot of guys don't dance, and so seeing a bunch of them get down to like something disco like that would be that's infectious. I've never understood why when they made the musical, like the stage musical version, they made they made it not British. They probably they wanted to try to Americanize it so that like the audience people will come and see it and be like, oh, that's a British show. I don't want to go see that because I, I don't. 
I feel like producers worry about weird shit with audiences. Do you ever They like do. That? No, they do. And I've heard this um on the TV side as well. It's just like like executives will focus so much on the wrong thing. And and they and they'll just like focus on things that don't even matter. Um, this is completely different, but uh, something you'll appreciate uh, was for Man of Steel mm-hmm. when they were uh, trying to get that movie off the ground. Mm-hmm. The the writer of it was talking to the executives about uh, the scene where uh, Clark Kent's uh, ship lands yeah. to Earth and, and, and Krypton explodes. It was like, well, well, I don't want him having. And, and they think the exec I, said something along the line yeah, of like, I, know, I heard about this. So like later in the movie, they use the they use his original childhood spaceship to like open the the net the uh, the Phantom Zone and right and and send uh, the evil Kryptonians there. Uh, but what the producers were uh, came to the writers and they were like. They were uh, they were concerned that if they destroyed Superman's childhood ship, he wouldn't be able to get back to Krypton. To which they responded with, yeah. "We we just spent the first twenty minutes of the movie destroying Krypton." <laughs> it exploded. Also, also, how many movies and TV shows have existed where it's Krypton's no more? That's like it's like Alderaan. It's gone. It's in mm-hmm. the lore. Yeah, there's nothing like. Yeah. It's like Batman's parents, they're dead. Like it's it's that simple. These are the fact like people could come back to life and, and die and, and be reborn and have like different universes and stuff. But one thing's always gonna be true. Bruce Brain's parents are gonna get shot in that alley and, and, and Clark Kent's home gets destroyed. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm sorry, that's so so dark. It is dark, but like I actually I, I'm I'm obsessed with all the weird stuff that happened with like the Warner Brothers movies. And like that's not so even like that's not even like the least weird thing. Like, like the director, not the director, the producer of the of the two Suicide Squad movies, uh, when the when the when they were releasing the James Gunn one, he commented about the what had happened with with the David Ayers movie, and yeah. like it sort of just like confirmed that the producers were out of their minds because literally what he described in the interview was, okay, yes, yeah, so we had David Ayers cut of Suicide Squad, and then we had the the. F- essentially like a dramatic like character piece that was David Ayer's Suicide Squad. And then he's like, and then we got, then we had like the version that was made by, that was created essentially with reshoots and edits by the people who made the trailers for the movie. And, and they test screened both of them. And one of them is essentially a a wacky sort of comedy, like Deadpool-esque comedy. And the other one is this sort of pseudo, like this kind of serious like character drama about supervillains and then they when they test audience them the test he said the test audience scores uh were equally good and so his his thinking after that moment was to be like let's take the movies and smash them together into one movie and that's that's what happened (laughs) like they they made two different versions of the movie and then and when they had the opportunity to choose which one they would do they were like no just make him into one movie it's like... we'll just combine them together yeah. gosh like oh my just the tone deafness of just like that's not how things work like yeah. tonally you're you're taking two movies with two different completely different tones and try to switch them together it's inconsistent and yeah. people don't know like what they're what i ooh, I, I makes me so mad when like executives or people like that who have no idea about storytelling or anything try to make those decisions mm-hmm. and stuff and, and not <clears throat> It's just, that's just frustrating to hear because it's like 
if, if you're, oh, I don't even know, man. Like that, that's just like, I'm sorry, that, that's only totally blew my mind. You just combine both, those just combine like, both the cuts. Yeah, no, it was a weird, like when I read it, like when I read the quote from the interview, I was just like, what? Why would that be? That should never have been your, your impulse there. And they just made a whole mess of this whole DC thing. They just, it's just a mess now. I'll be honest. I personally have enjoyed um, all the DC movies that I've seen. I'm a big DC person. Uh-huh. And, uh, okay. and I'm a big fan of, of Zack Snyder. And I was a fan of Zack Snyder's Justice League a lot. Uh, which actually, when I went back and rewatched like the theatrical cut after watching Zack Snyder's cut, it blew my mind what they did to that movie in terms of the theatrical cut. Like the theatrical I, cut is mind-bendingly bad after watching the Snyder cut. Like I, I have not changed. watched it since it came out, but I that's something I wanted to do beforehand. But I just like I just needed to to see the movie to appreciate, and not be upset. But that is something I actually need to rewatch the uh, the the Whedon cut and then compare it to the Snyder cut. It's, it is weird. Okay, so like, first of all, it definitely looks like Joss Whedon like was sabotaging people. Like that was a thing he was accused of uh, by Ray Fisher and Gal Gadot. Uh, yeah. Was was that he threatened Gal Gadot's uh, like uh, career on on set? Supposedly, he Joss Whedon claims it was. She misunderstood him because uh, it, that English wasn't her first language, which is a terrible no. I know, no, right? Weeding, buddy, no. Um, and oh, balls. And but also like everything that everything good about Cyborg is not in the weeding cut. Like no, like like all the good Cyborg stuff is in the Snyder cut. It is not in the like weeding like. What Whedon did to Cyborg is, like, terrible. And actually, speaking of terrible producer moments, um, the one story about it, which is, can be con- kind of confirmed by looking at the cuts themselves, is um, there was this one scene that Whedon reshot where it was, it was the scene where Ray Fisher's body, uh, where Cyborg's body sort of fuses with the mother box. Yeah, and yeah. Joss Whedon and the and producer um, Jeff Johns were like, we're gonna reshoot this scene uh, for the Justice League movie. And Ray Fisher was like, I don't understand why we're reshooting the scene. We already shot this scene. This scene is fine. What's the purpose of reshooting the scene? And what Jeff Johns told him, and this is wild. Uh, Jeff Johns told him that, and it should be noted, Jeff Johns is the white guy. Jeff John, yeah, yeah. I, I, when I when I mention it like that, it makes you cringe because you know this is going in a bad direction. Uh, <laughs> what, Jeff, what Jeff Johns told Ray Fisher was that it was important for the black community that cyborgs still have a penis <laughs> because they were reshooting it. Like, and if you look at the weed and cut. It makes it clear that he is just missing an arm and his legs. But in, in Zack Snyder's version, like he his body has been totally like destroyed. Like he is a large percentage robot. That's wild. No, we don't need to fix we we don't need to fix uh systematic racism. We don't need to change how we police. We don't need to change uh how how they're educated uh, teaching race in schools. No, we need to make sure Cyborg has a penis. That's number one. Is it, what's the black people going to do if they don't have their penis? God, that is, uh, 
relating back to the fetishization of black men and black people and stuff that is just so that's so much in just one statement oh yeah like because like when you break out down as a statement it's like offensive to almost every group imaginable like because on the on the one hand uh yeah fetishizing black men and their penises uh uh, part uh part two also it ties black masculinity specifically to the penis so it's so it's offensive on that level um, it's offensive to to trans uh, black people. Yes, it, and it's also ableist because, yeah. by definition, like cyborg's body was destroyed in an accident, and and it is an ableist concept to suggest that people who have lost body parts in a, in a, in an accident would be less of a man because they lost their lower half of their body. That's a terrible. I think about that last one, but ableist is correct because like shit like that happens. And people do have to live with that. And what kind of fucking idiot are you going to be commenting saying like, oh yeah, not they have that penis because it's like it doesn't make you a man unless you have. It. And it's just beyond beyond fucking me, man. That I yeah. ooh, if I was Ray Fisher, man, I, I don't know how he's maintained such a calm public composure after all of that bullshit. I mean, yeah. and, it, and, it, and it's like his response has always been like professional and like very well stated. He he makes sure he goes back because he obviously has to. I mean, otherwise. They'll call him crazy and and uh, and say he's being a belligerent and uh, being offensive and shit. But a lot of people have pointed out the fact that until actually you know white women started coming forward, that people weren't really taking um, the accusations against Joss Whedon very seriously. Mm-hmm. Like until those started coming out of the woodworks, and like that was that was sort of like when when Ray Fisher started getting credibility was when um, the women from like Buffy and Angel started bringing their stories forward and they would tag themselves as I stand with Ray Fisher. And yeah. that was when people actually started sort of taking him more seriously. Uh, yeah, because, because or else they wouldn't have, because it'd be like, oh, well, he's just like, you know, you know, just causing trouble on set and you just dismiss his career, which is really easy too, because this was supposed to be for Ray Fisher, like his big jumping off point. Like this was exactly. supposed to be huge, but it's just the we can just bastardize it and stuff. And the, yeah. Yeah, like honestly, when I watched the the center cut, like the three characters who I felt like were improved the most were were Cyborg, Wonder Woman, and the Flash. Yeah, uh, I'm like he just cut so many great. They just that's a thing that the studio took out um, is when Flash goes back in time. Apparently, which is huge because that sets up yeah like everything that the DC universe is based off of all the multiple universes. That's their out. That's their yeah. end to be able to do whatever the fuck they want. Is the that- ability to Go different universes. Let me go to different timelines and shit. And honestly, that's honestly one of my favorite moments in a comic book movie ever is when he does that in Zack Snyder's Justice League. But apparently that one was the studio. The studio didn't like that segment and didn't understand it. And they didn't and they they made just we didn't cut that part out. <laughs> okay, well, I I can understand where the studio is coming from because all this DC stuff is just maddening and just where they go back. There's so many different versions. Everyone's going back in time and and then and, and they're well, that's gotten worse now because now yeah. they're trying to do the they're trying to also do the multiverse, which I think they have an uphill battle because I think they have an uphill battle because the nice thing about Spider-Man No Way Home did it really well. They did. Like they did it in a way where they could unite the different groups of Spider-Man fans uh, together and get past all that like sort of a posturing like nostalgia element that sort of like holds back fandom communities. 
they yeah. successfully bridged that gap in No Way Home. And there's so much division in the DC fandom. I don't know if they'll be able to handle it. Because they got, they're getting close because they had the two Flash. They had uh, Ezra Miller's and Grant Gustin's Flash from the TV show. Yeah. They had Ezra Miller on that TV show, Flash. Rumor and they met each other. Be, there's a rumor he will appear in, in the new movie. I would hope so. He's like my favorite Flash, even though that show has become so corny and just so just like sitcom-y. I, I will say, I, I thought the early seasons were pretty good uh, of that show. Um, although I did, okay, so I've noticed this. Like all the Greg Berlanti like superhero shows have like a, a weird formula where like the first two, like the first season or two will be very grounded. Yeah. And then by like season three or four, it's going to be like, okay, we're going, we're going full comic book now. And they'll just start like bringing in more and more stuff and until it becomes like kind of ridiculous. Yeah. That happened with the arrow, arrow hella grounded. And then, um, and they brought Flash in, which was cool. And then they, and they got uh, Ray Al Ghul. And that was cool. And then they got Damian Dark. And that's, I think that's where things started getting crazy. They introduced, whenever you introduce magic to it, that's where everything starts getting wonky. And then like you have the legends doing what the fuck ever they want in space and time. Um, and then you just have all these side characters. Like just yeah. who, who I just like are, are not in popular media for a reason. I mean, some of them, yes, I'm glad that they made appearances, but there are a lot, I can't even name half of them because there've been so many. There's so many people on bad guys being like, I'm going to be the next bad guy. It's like, well, who? how do you think you're going to top the next guy? How are you going to top Savitar? How are you going to top <laughs> reverse flash with just your, with just your magnetic guns? You're going to keep trying to rob a bank. Like, do you not, there is no, there's no lot. Everyone's just coming in. It's a new day. It's like, Oh, I could do that. I will say, I think the flash show may have escalated itself too fast. Because there are so many Flash villains that they could have done more with before they got into the Flash villains who are a serious threat to him. Yeah. And now they have to rely on the kids now to add that other fun element. They're, like, using his kids from the future now to come back and be, like, save the world. (laughs) Like, they have, like, his kids coming back. And and it's, like, I guess from their perspective, it's, like, something they did that that messes up the present timeline. And it's, uh, Mm-hmm. They, needed yeah. to, they needed to slow down they needed to slow down although one show I will recommend which is technically produced by Greg Berlanti is Doom Patrol okay I've heard lots of good things about Doom Patrol and I still have yet to watch it I think that's going to be the next thing I think um, Doom Patrol, I love Doom Patrol I think Doom Patrol is fantastic I think that if you read it as if you watch the film and you read it as as almost like viewing superheroes through like a lens of disability I think is a really okay. good way to watch it because it, it does address yeah. a lot of things that people with disabilities go through. In fact, I would say that season two, and I don't want to give anything away, but season two essentially is about the arc of a person not being able to cope with the concept that their child has a disability and that they will one day die and not be able to take care of them. Yeah. That is actually what season two is about. That I don't want to give away anything else, but that's that's what season two of Doom Patrol is about. I think it's a I think it's a great show. Well, that makes me interested in wanting to check it out because that that's I like it when superhero shows can find like those elements that are like connected to like 
mm-hmm. you know, experiences that we go through as humans and, and whatnot, because sometimes it could feel so hyperbolous, just like them being able to have these like godlike powers and stuff and, and, and any chance they can use to like sort of bring it back to like sort of the root problems that we deal with as humans and, and just stuff like that we deal with the everyday world like that is where yeah. I feel like I hope more shows go. I, I love that extra layer of depth. Like there's a yeah. lot of like there's a lot of complaint out there like, oh, comic book movies are too serious or comic book movies are too silly. And like I, I don't think it's a really a matter of whether or not a, a, something is is serious or silly. It, it's it's whether or not it's it's op- it's how many levels is it operating on to me? Yeah. Like, is it, like is it based is, in truth? Like, like, so like, um, like, uh, like the James Gunn stuff. Um, I think that James Gunn does a good job of putting like emotional depth into his pieces. I uh, like, um, like Peacemaker, his new, his new show. I, I would even recommend Peacemaker. I thought Peacemaker was good. Um, and it, it was impressive because, like, when I watched Su- the Suicide Squad with those characters, like, I thought that John Cena's character Peacemaker was just a total douchebag piece of shit, and he kind of is a total douchebag piece of shit. But like in Peacemaker, they like it's like, oh, oh, he is a douchebag piece of shit, but he's trying really hard to be better than a douchebag piece of shit. That's, that's actually was holding back from me watching because I was saw, I saw the Suicide Squad, I loved it, but I was like, I don't need to see more of this guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe I might give it a chance. Also, there's just so much to watch now. There's there is so, so much, much content. They are they are drowning us all in content. They're drowning us in content. It's not. I mean, I'm not complaining. I love having stuff to bounce between. I love having different I, vibes that can go between. I'm an addict, so like I'm always looking for something that to pump that dopamine into my brain like oh this new show and this new show give it give it give it i'll get obsessed over characters and pretend they're my friends and then be sad when there's no more episodes yeah no i i do i love i love superhero stuff i've loved superhero stuff like for a really long time and i don't and like the thing is is that like everyone keeps talking about when the bubble's gonna burst and like there's a part of me that's that's saddened by that idea because part of me is gonna be like but i'll still be here i don't know if it's gonna burst i think it will evolve I agreed. I actually like the most the the major comparison most people make is between like when the westerns were big, as as opposed to like the superhero movies. And people keep saying like, for years now actually, people have been saying when will superhero movies go the way of the western? But like the thing about that is is that like western films are are much more of like a, a conceptual storyline. Yeah. Like the truth about superheroes and superhero stories is that they're really about emotional investment. Like the audience that builds in the most emotional investment is what makes or breaks the superhero universes. Like people are emotionally invested in the Marvel universe. That's why it keeps going. Even when some people might say, oh, it's the samey thing. But like once you have a certain level of emotional investment, you don't need it to be that much different than what it was previously. To still exactly. get that that feeling, you can and find like, different angles to hit it on. You find different perspectives, and as time and culture changes, you can bring it up to date. Because I mean, Batman and Superman, these a lot of these characters have been around for like coming up eighty years and stuff, yeah. and they're still finding relevance and still finding ways to fit in and, and ways to elevate and, and be able to create cool new stuff. So it's like I think it's only growing, and it's just going to change. It's going to be look different probably in the next like twenty years, but like it'll be like a cool different. 
I don't want to give anything away about the Robert Pattinson movie because I know I haven't seen it yet. But like, I do think it is one of the most relevant Batman movies I've ever seen. I'm really excited because I'm a huge Batman fan. Awesome. Awesome. I, I definitely recommend it whenever you get a chance. Uh, I, um, I, I feel like actually one of the things that might have plagued the DCEU when it first started to come into effect is that Marvel had the, the real benefit of when they started creating their, their shared universe. It was largely from a, a blank slate. Yeah, they and they weren't not... boasting about their plans either. They were like, we're just going to, before they even, they had introduced like, this is phase one of a whole big thing. They just like teased it a little bit. They put a little something at the end of the trailer and they they just kept releasing movies. They just kept releasing a new movie until the, then eventually Avengers came and then they got people hooked. Mm-hmm. They sort of saw people sort of slow build. Like you didn't know where it was going at first, you know? True. And, and I think DC got too excited. They wanted to put all their cards, be like, we're going to do this big thing. And they had a lot of big talk. But, so, it was, but struggled to come up with a plan to execute it. So part of the issue I found I found out is actually um, specifically that like so like Zack Snyder would come up with a plan, and then the studio would come to him. And they'd be like, "Okay, we want this to be in the movie," and so he'd have to change the plan again. So like they did Man of Steel, and Man of Steel was the only one where the studio wasn't like messing with him. And part of that's because um, Christopher Nolan was the, one of the main producers on Man of Steel, and it was written by Christopher Nolan's brother and David Goyer. Uh, who had made the Dark Knight movies. And so they wrote it, and Zack Snyder directed it, and um, Christopher Nolan is is a big part of, like, like a, apparently one of the things he told Zack Snyder when Zack Snyder went on to make Batman vs. Superman was, don't let the studio mess with you. Um, but apparently Zack Snyder is a really nice, easygoing guy whose who's directing style is described as very collaborative. Okay. Uh, so, like, another... Yeah. A pro- another producer recently said that he thinks that's what ha- hurt Zack Snyder, actually, is that the studio is used to working with, like, people who throw big fits and, like, are very controlling of, of their movies. And Zack Snyder was um, apparently too open to collaborating. Uh, or at least that's what this guy said. He said he was too nice. He said Zack Snyder was too nice. Um, but so, so he made Man of Steel, and then he was going to make Man of Steel 2. And he had a whole thing where he was working on that. And then the studio came to him. They're like, okay, we want Batman to have a cameo in this movie so we can start doing the, uh, we start building our, our shared universe. And Zack Snyder was like, oh, okay, sure. We can make a Batman cameo. And so he started screen testing people, including Jason Momoa. Zack Snyder wanted Jason Momoa to be Batman at one point. Uh, uh, that would be weird. I mean, I haven't seen the screen test. Maybe it was cool. Who knows? Uh, but... Uh, <laughs> A lot of muscles for 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 uh, Batman. I mean, he's like I mean, he's they like, still went with a lot of no. muscle Batman. They went they went with clearly Frank Miller like giant shoulders Batman. Uh, yeah. But uh, fifty doors Batman. Yeah. <laughs> but so so then that cameo became the studio wanting him to turn. Uh, that he originally wanted to make two movies. To he wanted to do Batman versus Superman in two movies. And then the studio was like, no, it's got to be one movie. And so then, and so the next thing you know, he makes a four-hour cut of a movie. And the studio cuts that movie down to two and a half hours. Which and then... No, it's a bad idea. It's a, like, bad that idea. Is, like that, if you look historically through, like, movies getting director's cuts, movies that were cut for length, almost always a bad idea. Almost always. That's crazy. That's and, that's so just like you, because you're like, what are you cutting out? And like, how do you? And like, and 
because it's like sometimes like if you make like minor cuts like like maybe like shelf like take out 20 minutes it won't hurt but like out of a four hour cut you're taking two and a half hours that's an hour and a half well, of an like, hour and a half but yeah but no that's like an hour and a half of like exposition is hour and a half of like action it's like things that set things up it's like you're missing pieces yeah I, i've seen like and i so they did later release the ultimate cut which is three hours long um and uh, Zack Snyder has said that's the version of the film he's most happy with that that's been released. Um and actually it it was it's t- I don't know if you've seen the ultimate cut, but it's telling because the ultimate cut you watch it and you're like, "Oh my god, the thing they cut out of the theatrical cut was Superman. They cut out almost all the Superman. What is <laughs> There was a lot of missing super I felt like Superman wasn't in that movie a lot. He was just sort of like Looking back on it, it's sort of he was just like sort of moping and just sort of staring around. And in the ultimate cut, you see there was like a whole thing where where Clark Kent like goes to Gotham to investigate Batman and like meets with people and like interviews them about Batman. And like this is also helpful because it it's one of the few parts in the movie where they explain that Batman hasn't always been this crazy. Like there's a scene. In yeah. in the in the ultimate edition, where essentially like this guy who's like scratching off a lottery ticket, in, Clark Kent, he talks to Clark Kent about Batman, and he's like, "Batman has changed. He is he is more aggressive now, and he is hunting." And he like holds up the lotto ticket, and he's he scratched a Batman symbol in it. And like the whole the whole idea is that Batman is meant to be traumatized by both the death of Robin but also from this time that aliens came from the sky and obliterated his, his company's building. And they just like blew over the fact of Robin. Like I, there was like maybe one shot of the well, Robin. That was, supposed, that was supposed to be elaborated on in the, in the first Suicide Squad movie. Like that storyline was meant to be picked up with Robin by David Ayer, but like they once again also shave it down to almost nothing in that movie. There's no cohesion. There's none of the directors are, are are able to talk to each other because the studios are like gridlocking and they can't like get to each other. Like yeah. they're, and that's sort of what happened with the Star Wars movies too. Like that the new sequel stuff. It's like you had. Oh my god. Uh, yeah. That that's another one that was just like, they were like they were really excited to get back like get a new audience and that they completely just rolled over a cohesive story over the three over the three movies and, and just you got two movies that are very different and then one movie that tried to make up for everything like it felt felt it felt like to me like sort of the same thing that happened with the justice league was because it was like they made the first movie and like it was super mm. successful but there was a lot of people who were, who had the fair criticism that it was really just a recycling of all the old star wars pieces and then they're like okay you want different you want different we'll do different and so then they put out the middle movie, the last, uh, the last Jedi, and it is essentially an inversion of Star Wars tropes. Instead, like if you watch that movie, it's almost like they're doing Empire Strikes Back backwards. Backwards, yeah. Like they they start fleeing, and then there's a sequence where they are in a gambling place, and it goes backwards to instead they are then they find a smuggler who betrays them instead of they they are betrayed by a smuggler who then helps them. Yeah, what happens in Empire, and then it ends on an ice and set and salt planet. Interesting. I, yeah. at, I think like that movie on its own is great, 
mm-hmm. but within the context of that whole universe they're trying to set up is not it's not yeah because like they try to do a different thing and then when the different thing upset people who are like because the first movie there's two the same and then the second movie it's too different and then the third movie happens and it's like hey is it the same enough for you now <laughs> is it same but different it's same but different <laughs> Yeah, third movie. Yeah. Third movie made me mad. I, 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 I have trouble with Star Wars after that. That really. There's just a, like I, I'm not gonna hold it against anyone who enjoyed it, but like there is like a lot of stuff in that third one where it's like, uh, what? A lot of moments they didn't earn. A lot of moments they didn't earn, and just were like trying to just wrap it up, just to be done with it. So I, I really feel like nothing that happened with Poe Dameron was earned. Like. Yeah. Like, he just gets to be a general when, like, it's not even, like, something that matches, like, his strength set. He just, he just, like, but he's a pilot. Wouldn't he be better off being in the, he's going to be a general and a pilot? What? That doesn't, it's not, doesn't seem efficient. No, it's a whole, it's a whole thing. And Finn will be my co, my co-general because (laughs) we're best buds now. That that was the relationship they tried to put Finn in all these relationships. The only relationship the fans cared about between him and Poe. It was like the bromance. That's what we came here for. I I just I think Finn deserves better. I, I Finn deserves. He has sort of a similar thing with uh, like Ray Fisher had not in the severity of like sabotage, but it was like his stuff was very like mess with. Like you could tell they were trying to go in one direction with him, but then they just sort of eat it back and put yeah. him in different. Like, yeah. I felt like the first one, at least, Finn, they introduced a lot of really good potential. Like, the idea yeah. of that stormtrooper, like, uh, coming over to the, the Alliance, there's a lot of really good stuff to do with that. And they, then they just, they don't do anything with it. No, it's a lot of missed opportunities, which is yeah. frustrating. All right, I hate, to, I hate to say this, but, like, I don't want to make you late for your next thing. Uh, All right. How are you doing on time? uh we if we could start wrapping up soon i think we'll be all set okay cool very cool all right uh so okay let's give you a chance to say some plugs and a little bit about yourself then i and jordan of course work for the center for applied drama and autism uh even though jordan will soon be leaving the beautiful state of ohio for the to for ohio's big city cousin uh, Chicago. <laughs> That's the best way to describe it. It's, a, it's big city cousin. It's well, I mean, like Chicago kind of feels like a cross between Ohio and New York, like yeah, that, for sure. That's the, for sure. That's, that's it's it's got the Midwest of the Ohio smashed into the the New Yorker uh, elements, and that's uh, what I'm most excited about. Um, is uh, should I talk about what I'm doing over there? Uh, yeah, but. But you're also probably doing some stuff here before you go. Also, you are a big member of Imposter Theater, isn't that right? Yes, yes, I'm a member of Imposter. Like, do I have anything to plug? I'm like, I do. So, when is this coming out? Do you think? Hopefully tomorrow. Oh, oh, so you have a good turnaround time. That's awesome. I uh, do almost no editing. That's fine. That's, that's not fine. True. When it's just me, like, I get really annoyed every time I hear on my recording, like, the sound of myself taking a drink. And, like, so I've started editing that out. But, like, generally speaking, I don't do a ton of editing. I, like, I think we had a great conversation today anyways. I had fun. So I hope nothing gets taken up. I had fun, too. Um, But, yeah, for Imposters, if it's coming out tomorrow, uh, March 25th, I'm in the sketch group called Whoops. Uh, We perform at Forest City Brewery. 
uh, 8 p.m. And then we're doing another one in April, I believe April 25th as well, 8 p.m. for City Brewery. So those are sort of two of my last shows I'm doing. Um, I'm also doing, I also host a weekly Monday show with imposters uh, called Triple Threat Showcase. I host with two other comedians. Uh, it's really fun. So that happens on Monday nights at 8 p.m. I'm coming to the theater in Tremont uh, across from Edison's. Uh, that that's another place you can go. I, I'll, I'll be doing more stand-up stuff, which I will post on my Instagram page, uh, which is what page you probably want to find me at, uh, J-E-E-U-E-L-L. It's J, my middle initial, E, and then E-U-E-L-L, my last name, uh, comedy. J-E-U-E-L-L, comedy. So you can find me on there. Yeah, you can find me. That's also my handle for Twitter and TikTok. Not that I'm really active on either of those, but who knows? Things change. You never know. You never know. And uh, I'll be going to Chicago come end of May. Uh, I'll be studying at DePaul University doing screenwriting, comedy screenwriting, working with DePaul and Second City, um, and also trying to do stand-up. I think that's what I'm going to be doing a lot this summer because I'm going to be in a new city, don't know nobody. So I'll just be doing stand-up, trying to insert myself into a scene. Excellent. All right. Well, I'm definitely going to have to have you back on because I realized yeah, sure. there was a thing I wanted to talk to you about, but it would be a whole discussion. I forgot to ask, I wanted to ask you more about how you got into improv and comedy, but you know what? I want to give that conversation the proper uh, time it can, it can be given. So I think we'll have to save that for next time. Yes, have me back whenever. I would love to come back. This is so much fun. Uh, absolutely. It is a blast. All right. Well, uh, thank you for joining me, Jordan. Thank you so much for having me, Ruben. All right. And let's say goodbye to our audience. Have a great day, audience. Bye, audience. Thanks for listening. All right. All right, and please welcome to the next comedian, Mama. Welcome back up to the stage, Mama and Mama Johnson. Hey, everybody. I'm here to tell some jokes. I hope you're ready to laugh. Oh, God. I am so ready to laugh. All right. So Patrick Starr and SpongeBob SquarePants were out bubble hunting one day. And and, Pe and SpongeBob was like, hey, we sure haven't found any bubbles. So Patrick was like, I know where some bubbles are, SpongeBob. Oh, oh my god! Oh god, she's so funny! Oh man! Oh god, she's so good! What what the hell, Bob Jr.? You never laugh like that at any of my work. Dad, 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 you it's it's really easy, it's, you know. Mom, Mom knows her audience, and that audience is me. <laughs> so funny.